Cinemakers, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 11, Traffic from the Year 2000. I'm Mike Manzi. I am Tobin Addington. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I have a question right off the bat here. <laughs> I feel like this movie, which was nominated for Best Picture, which won Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Editing, I feel like not to the extent of Shakespeare in Love, but I feel like this is a movie that people sort of criticize in terms of like the best picture. Do you think, maybe I'm wrong and maybe you guys both love this movie, but do you think people would be more fair or more kind to this movie if this movie hadn't been so critically acclaimed? Or is this a whole thing that I've made up in my head? Because I feel like this is like a, a movie that critics love but people don't love. So my experience with this movie is that people seem to get it confused with the film Crash because they have similar structures and they're both these very sort of Hollywood accessible, quote unquote, indie themed movies. You know, I feel like these are themes and stuff you don't ordinarily see too often illustrated this way in a feature film. I mean, this feels like independent filmmaking on a grand scale with lots of money and big stars. You know, we've got like each segment here has like its star power and all that kind of thing. But from memory, I remember this being well received. I don't I don't remember any controversy over the overhype or anything like that. From, from what I remember, people liked it and people appreciated that it commented on this war on drugs in the way that it does and that, you know, it's political um, and yet sort of accessible at the same time. Um, and so, like, uh, for the most part, no, I don't think that it had a bad rap. I, I, that's just from my perspective. What do you think, Tobin? Yeah, m- my perspective is maybe going to be a little biased as well. This movie came out around the time, or at least was had, was going through its Oscar season as I was getting into film school. So I was graduating college and headed off to graduate school. So I was like, yeah, I was very into sort of <laughs> the future of film. And I, and I was a, such a Soderbergh head and I had really liked Aaron Brockovich. And I, I love this movie. I think this is a really good movie. I do know people in film school. You know, we all get to film school if you go there and we're all snobs to one degree or we, we become snobs. Or, you know, like you go through a phase of, well, I only like French films or I only like silent films from the 1920s or whatever your sort of up your own ass deal is. And I remember there were people who were really, who really didn't like this movie, who, who thought it was too Hollywood. I think the criticisms of it was that it, it, it sort of glossed over some of the nuances of the issue to sort of have some action scenes and stuff, uh, or, or just because it has to go to so many different storylines that you never get really deep in any one. I think there they were kind of missing the point. But now, now all that said, I don't know how well the movie did. I don't have a sense that it was popular or unpopular. I don't think that it, that people watch it a lot. You know, it's not a movie that, unless you come in already loving it, that you're going to put in on a, on a weekend, you know, for it's fun. It's really long, yeah. But as a movie that is, as a sort of a touchstone of how you can do a certain kind of movie, I think I think as, a, as in terms of its influence on other filmmakers, as with a lot of Soderbergh stuff, that's how I look at it. It's more as like a, something that I that I sort of have been influenced by and that I really like, not necessarily something that the average filmgoer is going to return to very often. I think the reason that it's like skewed in my head, and I know that people really don't like Crash, but I think the reason it's skewed in my head is because on Letterboxd, I have like 20 friends or 20 people I follow have seen this movie and pretty much it's all between like three and four stars and that's good but it's not great and i would assume especially at this point where we've seen him the last few movies like do these like really really great movies that i loved and then i can defend here it just feels like a lot and like i think it works but it feels 
overwhelming, kind of. And I think that's sort of the point, because this is adapted from a TV series, and it kind of feels like a TV series. It almost feels like it should be another TV series, you know? Like, there's so much happening here. There's, like, three main storylines, but beyond that, there's other storylines, and they're kind of crisscrossing, but not really. And I don't... I don't know. It just... I wasn't as engaged with this as I had been with the last few, and I'm not sure why that was. Yeah, I could tell you watching it this time is my second time ever seeing it, and I remembered very little because there is a lot to cover here. I think maybe we could have lost the Catherine Zeta-Jones segment if we needed to lose one. <gasps> I'm sorry, but that, for me, uh, is even though the Michael Douglas one feels the weakest, the Catherine Zeta one is just the one that, for me, I think we... I'm, we'll get into it. But my point is, like, I feel like the movie gets overwhelming, right? And I think part of it is because the last few films we've watched have been focused on one character, basically, and they've been very sort of small stories. And here, you know, we've got, like, four or five segments, and we have to get introduced to everybody, and we have to set up all these characters, whereas he hadn't done that in the last few movies, really, like this many main characters. So I feel like maybe there's parts of it that is weaker than others because there's just, I feel like, stronger segments than others. Like, I could just watch Don Cheadle and Luis Guzman as a cop film for 100 minutes. Like, that's almost like this time around, coming back to it, I was like, I wish there was just more of that maybe and less of other stuff. But yeah, it's it's tricky because each of these segments feel like they could work on their own. And yet Mm -hmm. it also Mm -hmm. works like an anthology, which I really like that about it. So it's overwhelming, uh, but I like it and it's kind of tough to get through at parts, but worth it. That's my ultimate feeling about it. I, I feel like it's a rewarding experience to get through. It feels like if they were making it today, which is kind of funny since it was originally a TV show, but that this would be a TV series. This feels like Didn't it come back as a TV series at one point? No, that was Crash again. <laughs> Crash came back as a TV, as a TV <laughs> series. See, like now I'm getting them crossed. Crash I really do hate. Another time we could we could talk about Crash meeting Brokeback Mountain for Best Picture that year. But in this case, I, I feel like you're right. It's, it's maybe a little overstuffed for a movie. And you're right, it is long. Having just watched, rewatched the prequel Star Wars movies with my son, which are about as long <laughs> and are really terrible. It's, this, it's not like it's a, you know, this is not a, a six hour movie, but but it is long. And, and if you're not into one of the storylines, if one of the storylines is not working for you, then those places are going to drag. I remember liking the Catherine Zeta-Jones parts before, and I really liked them this time. I think she's fantastic in, in those scenes. And I, I would actually trade you the, you could have the Don Cheadle, Luis Guzman stuff uh, storyline and, and I would take I would follow her for a whole movie I I think she is doing a phenomenal job as a woman who who truly does not know and has never asked has never apparently even wondered what her husband really does for a living until she has to sort of by necessity, because he's been he's been arrested, figure it out and and learn what he was really up to, navigate the waters on her own, and become a drug lord. Like that's a, what an arc, and and she carries it with such sort of. I love that there's a scene in the movie where she brings homemade lemonade out to the surveillance truck to Luis Guzman and Analyze and Don You know, and and so she does it with such a light touch, uh, and then gets so dark later on. I don't know. I'm. I think her arc is is one of the stronger ones, and it would have been neat, as you say. I would like to have spent more time with it, maybe. And, and maybe you're, maybe you're right. Maybe it is just that it, it maybe could have used some thinning out or do this over ten hours. And who knows? That maybe they'll do that again. That that might be a way to go. Yeah, I think she's great in the role. But like I said, I feel like you're gonna, you know, whoever you are, there's there's just certain segments that are gonna engage you more. Uh, even though I love the moment with the lemonade, I didn't like when the movie 
cross stories so much like that. You know, I felt like maybe it would have been stronger if no one passed people on the street and these were just sort of tangentially or just like they're they're connected by theme instead of actually like characters are going to cross over and stuff. But uh, that that to me were the sort of little Hollywood moments where I could almost see notes being like, well, how are people going to know this all takes place like <laughs> at the same time? It's like, okay, then we'll, we'll have them like just miss each other on the street at one point. And I do, I, I find that intriguing, her character arc. I just, again, like I just feel like they're, it happens so quickly. Uh, there's just not enough time. I don't think that it couldn't happen. I just feel like I, you know, if we had more time, it would have worked a lot better for me. I wish we got more of her too, because she, to me, is like the only character that really changes in this movie, or at least she has the biggest change. That Michael Douglas sort of goes a little bit of soul searching as his daughter becomes a junkie and then sort of gets clean, and that I know is the emotional core of this, but I also sort of don't care as much about that. She really, like you were saying, Tobin, goes from this woman who, you know, she says to her lawyer, like, I'm 30 years old and I've never had to basically do anything for myself. Like, I don't know what to do now. And then she becomes this decision maker. And I wish we got more of that. I totally agree that I think she is the most interesting thing here. I like the Luis Guzman and Don Cheadle parts the best. I want to hear the end of that tattooed dick joke that Luis Guzman <laughs> was telling before, you know, the shit hit the fan. But I don't know. I, I just, I like her stuff the best and I want more of it. But I also realize that this movie is almost two and a half hours long. The original screenplay was like 170 pages or something. <laughs> it's adapted from a TV series and like you have to make cuts somewhere. I just don't know where. Or maybe a bold decision, you know, just like he would do eight years from now with Che and split that into two movies, maybe do like two traffics. Maybe it doesn't need to be a TV series. Maybe it just can be like a two-part movie sort of. Mm -hmm. Or release it with the extra hour. I mean, if it's going to be this big, epic Oscar film with all these big stars, like, make it big. Make that the decision. Be like, okay, we're going to go, like, old Hollywood here and put out, like, a three and a half hour movie. Or, like, Tarantino doesn't care anymore, right? Like, he'll put out a three and a half hour Western. You know, the times are different, definitely. I don't know if he really had the clout for that, but it would have been interesting. I would have watched it. It would have kept me in my seat. I saw this movie three times in the theater. It's never really felt that long to me. I hear what you guys are saying, and I, I do I do recognize that there are parts that, that could be excised. I'm, I'm least interested in the Erica Christensen, I'm a drug addict stuff, but, but maybe that's just because those kinds of movies, movies about addiction... I'm not really interested. <laughs> they can be fantastic, and, and I, I can understand that. But I'm, I'm more interested in the way all of the other sort of sociopolitical stuff fits together, the puzzle piece of it all, the sort of sociological examination of, of this world through the human beings that are most directly affected by it. That's the stuff that sort of turns my crank here. I mean, I took my mom to it. She really liked it. I think it took my sister to it, maybe. I, just, I went to it with friends in college. I just went I <laughs> kept going to this movie. For my money... It's really, really well directed. Even though it's too long, maybe it could be a, a TV series, maybe it could be two movies. For it to hang together as well as it does and to feel as cohesive as it does, given how sprawling it is, I think sort of he, he does some, some very impressive things technically between the editing and the cinematography and, and the casting and working with his actors to make it all feel like one world. This is the first movie he shot by himself, right? So this is really kind of like a nexus and a crossroads of a lot of things in his career. And that is the first thing that he shot himself. He used only natural light for this, which is pretty cool. Like they were just shooting. They shot it in like, it was 54 days, which seems like kind of a while. But then you realize that they had like 110 speaking parts and they shot in like eight countries or something like, or locations for eight countries or something. Like it was crazy. In terms of actors, 
going back to the Erica Christensen thing, you know, she's corrupted by Topher Grace, so I'm glad that next week on Ocean's Eleven he'll get his comeuppance when Rusty is just a dick to him at the, at the, at the poker game, you know, in his uncredited cameo in the beginning. But uh, Michael Douglas will return a couple more times. Benicia will be back for Che. Catherine Zeta-Jones will come back a couple more times. Don Cheadle is back from Out of Sight, and he'll be back for the Ocean's movies. Albert Finney's back from Aaron Brockovich. He'll be back in an Ocean's movie. Luis Guzman's back for the third time. Viola Davis is back for the second time. Like, there's everything. Like, this is sort of, you know, it's a it's a blend of his indie sensibilities with a Hollywood budget and, like, all these actors he's used before and will use again and using what he's learned as a director to also become the cinematographer. And it's just this perfect crossroads blend that I, I, I sort of wish that the stories intersected more because if it did, it'd be like a better metaphor for what this movie is, I feel. Like, it's not the first Hollywood movie by any means that he's done, but it sort of seems like this nexus of a lot of things that's going to propel him into a couple different directions forward. Yeah, I remember there was articles at the time this movie came out. As I say, I was headed to film school, so I was reading everything I could find about this movie. And I remember there were articles that, as I recall, talked about him, as he was talking to Michael Douglas about playing the role, he was nervous about Michael Douglas being this big movie star that he's going to expect to spend a lot of time in his trailer waiting for them to get the light right. And that he sort of warned Michael Douglas. He said, look, I'm going to shoot this myself and we are just going to go, go, go. He said, you're, you're barely going to have time to sit down in your chair and we're going to be, we're going to be set up to go again. We are not going to stop shooting this movie. That's going to, we're going to shoot it like it's an indie movie in order to sort of make it on the budget that we have in the, in the time that we have. And that Michael Douglas was really apparently very game for that. And I think he's, I think he's very good in the movie too if that sort of section is less interesting to me I think that it really pays off I think that if and this will be a a theme going forward with actors with sort of Hollywood actors working with Soderbergh those that are game to sort of jump on the train and do whatever he wants you know to play to trust him in this way and work in ways that they're maybe less used to the results I think are going to be for the most part pretty impressive Well, what I like about that Michael Douglas part, I'm sure you read this back in the day, I don't know if you remember it, but he was originally offered the part and said no, and then Harrison Ford sort of agreed to do that part, and he worked on the role a lot with Soderbergh, and then eventually, I think for the same reason that Michael Douglas came back on board, you know, that run and gun, like, more acting than sitting, Harrison Ford was like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore, (laughs) so he left, and so then Michael Douglas saw the the new expanded, changed, whatever role that Soderbergh and Ford worked on, and he's like, okay, like, now I'm down for this. And so I think he works really well here. I think he had married, he and Catherine Zeta-Jones have been married before, because she's actually pregnant. The actress is pregnant in this movie. And so they wrote that into the screenplay. So I guess that's their kid, right? Yes. And I think that would have been, I think that was, what a gift for her character that she's pregnant. I mean, it's just, it just sets her up even more as the, as a sort of the person you least expect to make that. Yes. Because she's supposed to have, like, two kids, I think, or maybe in the original TV series or whatever, the character she's based on had two kids. But in this movie, because she was pregnant, they rewrote it to fit that in. And so toward the end of the movie, where she has, like, that doll made of cocaine, she's like, I'm six months pregnant. Like, I'm not going to do cocaine. Like, fuck you. Like, I'm getting out of here. And, like, that's it's perfect. Like, it works really well for that character. Yeah, that's great. And that's a good change, too. You know, he's always been good and clever when he adapts things to sort of change things, but keep the spirit of the original intact. And so I believe that that is still intact. I really feel like about the way they shot this, you know, like the the running gun, you know, it sort of has that it's become very cliche now, you know, with like the Bourne films, especially, but it has that documentary running gun feel to it. And there's just like an insane amount of coverage at times in this movie, which really, I think that helps it because a lot of these stories 
you know, on their own, you know, aren't necessarily like brand new or anything. Like I like them. I think they're all cool and stuff, but you need something to sort of jazz it up a little. Like what he does to, you know, instantly tell you're in a new segment is the way he sort of color tones everything, mm-hmm. right? Like Ohio is blue and Mexico is yellow and LA is sort of like normal almost or gold. It's red and like primary colors is Okay. Yeah, 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 and so like even just like minor tricks like that just show like a lot of uh, ingenuity while you know being a director thinking about what they want the audience to understand, and then being the guy shooting it, being like, okay, so from a camera standpoint, like what will be the best thing to draw the viewer's eye towards at the same time and I think he does like a really remarkable job and and another thing I like that he does is he uses different it seems like he's using different types of film for each segment as well um, like definitely the Mexico stuff feels like way more grainier uh, almost like it was shot on like 16 millimeter or something like that and then the, the stuff with Michael Douglas feels like you know very sleek like almost like James Cameron shot it at times so I mean he just has like this really great bag of tricks that he uses like as this director in conjunction with being the guy shooting it that I feel like pulls off a lot of tricky stuff to keep us engaged while we're watching the movie. Yes. Real quick, going back to the Michael Douglas role, Al Pacino and Richard Gere were both considered for that role, which I don't know that they would have worked. Pacino would have, that would have been real different, right? I mean, unless he's, unless he was, unless he was not doing his, you know, hua Pacino, right? Like, I think Pacino is just too big for this role, basically. Like, I think Richard Gere would have been better. He's way more subtle. He kind of yes. he's much better at doing very little. Michael Douglas is sort of like a happy medium between yeah. the two, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. and his character is very interesting because he basically just becomes more and more disillusioned with his position. Like, <laughs> he becomes the drug czar of America, and then he comes to realize like there's basically no point in being the drug czar, and he goes back to his old job as being a judge. In the end of this, like half the time he feels like he's lying to himself. The other time he feels like he's just trying to keep it together and then at the end he can't um so i think pacino you might have gone to it would have gotten like a performance in heat maybe where he would have started uh screaming a little too much or you know being a little too big but i like what douglas is doing you know you can imagine the pacino that was in the insider as Lil Bergman, the 60 Minutes producer, he could play it that way. There's a crusader part to Pacino. I, I rarely feel like Pacino can play, or maybe so when he plays disillusioned, he loses so much energy, it's less interesting to watch or something. I don't know. I always feel like his his wheels are really turning. And there's a edge to uh, Michael Douglas that allows me to believe that he could sort of see his ambition before the reality of the ineffectual way that we fight the drug war, or even if we should have a drug war, that that then his eventually his ambition gets you know crumbled by the reality getting too close to home for him, and and maybe maybe the part would be played just an entirely different way, but in the in the way that this movie's balanced, I think that works pretty well. And what I also like about Michael Douglas, and I don't know if these other guys would have done it, but. Apparently, at one point, he was talking to the customs chief in charge of the California border crossings, like, as Michael Douglas was talking to this guy about, like, whatever, like, what his job entailed, all this different stuff, you know, drug interdiction, and they were just talking to each other, and Soderbergh shot that, like, it wasn't scripted, they just shot that, and he apparently he was, like, terrified that he was going to, like, address him as Mr. Douglas, but that scene or whatever was just Michael Douglas talking to somebody. It's like, Michael Douglas is like a huge, huge actor, but I wonder if somebody like Pacino or Harrison Ford, who if they were in this role 
maybe would have wanted to like not talk to people in between shots and like you know go sit in, like in a trailer or like under an umbrella or you know what I mean like somebody with like a bigger ego if they would have been out just talking to people allowing that kind of you know the fitting in perfectly with the movie in terms of that handheld just seems to capture like everyday life like I don't know if those other guys would have done that the way that he did yeah and, it, and it's also cool because it's sort of an evolution of Soderbergh's style right like he kind of picks real people to populate parts of his films up until this point. And now I feel like when Michael Douglas goes to Congress or where he goes to Washington, I don't know if they really are, but it seems like those are real congressmen just explaining to Michael Douglas because they have the opportunity to as like what their job entails and things. And so like, I don't know, there's just such a very natural feel to it when when you just put one or two real people in there, it just adds like a whole different vibe to the rest of the the movie, the tone shifts in that direction, more realism, um, you know, adding shots of him actually talking to the border guard, like unscripted, like on the fly things like that's just great because that is something you can only get if you've decided to really run and gun this thing, you know, it's like improv filmmaking to a point. And so it's like kismet, you know, you, you have to have an actor that wants to be down for that, really, you know, like it's it's great that Soderbergh wasn't just stuck with star power for the sake of it, that he got someone who really wanted to get in there. And, and there's also times when they're like going through the ghettos and stuff or when he's with Topher Grace you're, you're almost like okay they just took the car for a day took the camera went in the car and drove through the inner city and like you know how many actors would would want to do that really you know necessarily might find that a little dangerous what's weird and what's cool about that is that apparently Michael Douglas while they were filming this caught a purse snatcher and like waited on him to, for the cops to get there and then another time James Brolin went back to his car and found two kids trying to break in but he was dressed like the general and so like he scared them off because they thought he was police <laughs> or whatever so like yeah they're like in the shit like they're in a place where real crime is happening and they're not afraid to confront it I guess which is scary but also cool yeah, there's a whole element to Soderbergh's work that sort of his documentary uh, bent is feeding his narrative sort of work here, which is, again, a thing that's going to happen more and more. Those those two moments where Michael Douglas's character is sort of on his listening tour, where he's uh, at the border talking to the customs guy, and then when he's at the Georgetown cocktail party, are two of the strongest moments for me in his storyline. And, and those are all, at least I recognized three at the time, sitting U.S. senators at that cocktail party, or maybe four, I guess I saw four. Orrin Hatch is there, Bob, Barbara Boxer there is from California. And, and you, you do get the sense that this is a window into what sort of really happens, or at least their public view, I'm talking on camera about what really happens. But you get a sense that like, even if Michael Douglas and the camera crew wasn't there, the same kind of conversation might be going on. Uh, and the fact that Michael Douglas is just listening, right? These are these are not scenes where he has big speeches, where he's going to, this could be like on a West Wing episode or wherever. Like he's, it feels like we're spying on it. We're eavesdropping. And I think that that, when the movie's doing that, it's working, it's working at a, a different level here. And I think that's why both like the police law enforcement, good quote unquote good guy side of things likes this movie. And also the other side, you know, in terms of the more, let me get the exact quote, hold on. But there's basically like everybody who watched this movie liked it. Like stoners liked it. You know, people who were pro, like the, the sort of like left wing people who want to like legalize drugs like this movie. The right wing people who are like anti-drug like this movie. It's just because it feels real like it feels like real life you can sort of take whatever you want out of it like it's not preaching one 
perspective, it's like you can see Don Cheadle trying to do everything he possibly can to shut down this drug war, and then Miguel Ferrer, right before he dies, like, what's the difference? Like, the people who are getting high are still getting high, now they're getting, like, better stuff cheaper, like, you don't do anything. It's that you can't win the war on drugs, as I just learned from watching The Wire, finishing The Wire. Like, it's just it's impossible. Like you can sort of do things to make yourself and like make it seem like you're making a difference, but it's impossible to win. One of my favorite moments, and I guess there's sort of a revelation in each of these stories, but one of my favorite moments is in Benicio del Toro segment. And like, I really like his segment a lot because it's like, oh man, like, you know, it's in Spanish and they're in Tijuana and it just feels like a travelogue at that point. But it's just like this, the dirtiest, grimiest, sort of like ugliest travelogue ever. Um, But when he finds out that like everything he's been doing to clean up Tijuana is basically at the benefit of another cartel because like his boss is like completely corrupt and then he decides to be an informant. I love that moment because, yeah, it's like the futility, right? He's like a super cop down there, and then he's just realized what, what has he been doing this whole time. You know what I'm saying? Like, it almost makes you feel worthless, I could imagine. Like, And then Michael Douglas sort of goes through the same type of revelation when he realizes, like, his daughter's a junkie. He's like, there's nothing you can do on a grand scale to really attack this problem that's right in front of your face every day like that. You know, you really just have to be there, listen, and try and recognize it. So really like how that's sort of worked into everybody's story in a way. Yeah, there's a futility to it. There, there's a sense that the average is sort of spinning your wheels, working around the margins, and anybody who says they have a grand theory of how to solve this problem is blowing smoke. The other thing that you get is a sense of how the system on all sides is set up to sort of keep going no matter who slots into these roles, right? Like you take out one drug lord, another one's going to sort of take his place. When Michael Douglas meets the chief of staff for his role, he's a, a you know, career guy in the drug enforcement agency or whatever. That guy was there with the predecessor, with his predecessor, and will be there after he quits. He'll, he'll be the chief of staff for the new guy. Like you get the sense that Catherine Zeta-Jones' husband goes to jail, so she takes his place as the sort of kingpin. And the systems that are all, the infrastructure is all set up in a way that it's going to perpetuate itself no matter what the individual people do, which, Joey, as you say, is like the overall point of the wire. That's exactly, yeah. exactly the, it. The game, the game never changes, just the players. Like, you're never going to take out the cartel. Like, there's two cartels. Like, they basically take out one cartel mostly in this, and then the other cartel just rises up. Like, and then eventually there's going to be another cartel. And was it the chief of staff talking to Michael Douglas? Who was the guy who was talking about the two letters? Was that him? No, that's his predecessor. That was the guy who had the job okay. before him, yeah. Because that's the same thing. Like, you know, that's it's it's just a domino effect that, like, Michael Douglas is going to be sitting there after he's leaving talking to the next guy, and that's going to keep going. It's, it's all the same. There's always the people trying to stop it, the people trying to keep it going. It's somehow uplifting, but mostly depressing. <laughs> like, it's, it's weird how it's both ways. That It's the testament to the human will that, you know, these people keep going even though they know they really can't make a difference one way or the other, but also at the same time, like, that's immensely depressing. Yeah, I, I love the Miguel Ferrer character guy because he just he, he just knows the world that he's living in. He's like, look, we send like hundreds of trucks over the border just so like a couple could get through, you know? You just throw money at the problem, basically, you know? Like, it's always going to work. And then in the end, he's like, what really changed? Your partner got shot and died, right? Imagine if you never busted me, if like heroin or weed was legal, like your partner would still be alive. I'd be out there, you know, contributing to society. It's just like at the best what we're doing is sort of slowing the clock maybe a little bit but like people are dying in the process like those minutes are stopped by stacks of bodies and so like it's just terrible you come out the other end and nothing has changed except like 
there's a bigger graveyard. So like it's, that's, that's really the shame is that like people die in the process of all this, like less people that would die probably maybe if the drugs were just legal, perhaps. Yeah, there's this human human suffering. The whole system inflicts everybody from the from what Carolyn has to do to get her fix near the end of the movie to the what happens to Benicio del Toro's partner who gets executed to the people who are being tortured. Oh yeah, Frankie Flowers gets tortured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That like nothing nothing is. That the, the human cost is really profound, and that if the, if the solutions are futile and the cost is profound, then that we really do need to rethink what we're doing. That's, that does seem to be the message uh, of the movie. There has to be sort of a fundamental rethink of uh, sort of how we're prosecuting this. Speaking of Miguel Ferrer, did you guys know that he was Clooney's cousin? Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Which is crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. But also crazy is that when Benicio won Best Supporting Actor for this movie, he was only the third Puerto Rican to ever win an Oscar and the second Puerto Rican male to win an Oscar. And the first Puerto Rican male was Miguel Ferrer's father. Oh, oh wow. wow. So small little world. What's also weird about the Benicio role is that he didn't speak Spanish. Get out of town. He learned Spanish for this movie. Wow. That stuff exactly. feels so authentic. <laughs> he was me. born in Puerto Rico, but he like moved to America as like a really young kid and grew up just speaking English, I guess. This is on IMDb, so again, all these things might not be true, but I <laughs> I I assume that they're mostly true because I usually weed out the stuff that's like really, you know, people don't agree with it, whatever. But anyway, he had to learn Spanish for this role, which is crazy because, like, you think about Benicio del Toro in like every movie, The Usual Suspects and this and Sicario, and just like it feels okay. like such a part of who he <laughs> is. Why? Well, I, I mean, I haven't seen that, but I assume the same thing there. It feels like being able to speak Spanish like, seems like such a central part of who he is, but I guess not. Like, weird. When I tend to think of del Toro in films, it's like the lack of being able to understand what he's actually saying. Yeah, just yes, sort of exactly. Catching the inflection and being like, okay, yeah. like that ended on an up. So like, I think it was a positive sentence. Uh, it's funny because like when he came up in the uh, PSI Love Hoffman episode I was on, we watched Money for Nothing with John Cusack. And he basically steals that movie. I think it was right after he did the James Bond film he was in but right before The Usual Suspects so like he's got a really good role in that and he's like he's just using he's from Philly in that movie and he's using an accent and he's just like impossible to understand I mean that's just like I feel like that's just his trademark in movies well yeah that's like it's exactly like in The Usual Suspects when they're all in that box and they have to read that line and the guy's like in English like he's speaking English but it still like doesn't help like it's (laughs) I don't know what you're saying it's a testament to how good all these actors are in this and I think that helps that we have sort of like major players in each part we, you got Michael Douglas holding it down for the most part in his segment you got Benicio Del Toro holding it down in his segment and then you, you got Catherine Zeta-Jones doing it in her segment and then the only segment that kind of needs like two people is my favorite are uh, Guzman and Cheadle which is like combined I guess at that time they might make like a Brad Pitt or something I don't know like a super you know what I'm saying like they, no, yeah, they're, they're, they're lesser Ocean's Eleven they're like they're, yes. they're, they're five and six they're not one or two like the other guys would be they're like they combine to add up to number one or something. Yeah, yeah, but but everyone is doing just like I feel like they're just doing such top notch work. I mean, like I think the speed in which they're working really does come through once you know about it, and like you're like, why is this all just sort of like clicking and fast and feels just almost real time? And, and it's like because it is because they're just doing they're just burning through it. Not to say anyone could do that. There's just a certain connection going on between the, this crew and this cast that uh, Soderbergh is is like just a master at orchestra. 
orchestrating, you know, this concert that he's putting on. But it's definitely a shift for him as a director, because we talked about in previous movies about how he basically edit the movie as he was shooting it and like only sort of shoot what he needs and kind of not shoot as much coverage as he should or whatever because he was like I know how this is going to lay out but here there was a quote that he said on traffic I'd shoot any fucking thing and just think you know we'll sort it out later like he's just shooting (laughs) shooting shooting and then just like all right we got a movie here somewhere like let's just figure out what we have and put it together which is it feels exactly like him and also the complete opposite of what he's done for most of his career up at this point yeah it feels more like he probably shot a schizopolis. It feels more like he's operating on, on instinct and in the moment. And like, he's like, I will know what the moment needs to feel like. And I'm going to be, have the camera in my hands. I'm going to get in there and do it. And if I get the angle set up and it doesn't work, it doesn't feel right, I'll move. And I'll get something else. And we'll just move like that until we have, feel like we've sort of mined the scene for whatever, for, for whatever it's got. And I think that that's definitely the way to do this movie. If you tried to do this movie sort of schematically where you're planning everything out, I mean, you could do it. But I think that the that there's a certain amount of electricity, of realism, of pacing that you're going to lose. The, the high wire act might go away a little bit if you're if you're being too, if you're directing it the way he directs, directed some of his other movies that, that worked well for the those movies. You know, if you're doing this like Sex, Eyes, and Videotape, it's going to be a different kind of movie. It's Schizopolis at 200 times the budget. Instead of a quarter million dollars, it's like 50 million. So And twice, so twice the length, right? <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. That's funny. It's crazy. It sounds like the stories you hear about Gareth Edwards shooting Rogue One, where he's like, we just shot everything we want, like anything and everything. And later in the edit, we just, just like figured out the movie afterwards. But I mean, that just takes like such an incredible amount of trust on so many levels, like cast and crew alone, but then the studio, you know, like, could you imagine like, what is the look on their face when you come into the edit bay and you've got like a truckload of footage and you're like, yeah, we shot everything. We'll have it down to two and a half hours. <laughs> like At this point, I suppose that, that he's been riding on a lot of just like really good will from the studios, you know, Aaron Brock the Limey, like the last few movies have all been successful for him, right? So like he's had a track record. He's been sort of on the, shall we say, like comeback trail for in an, an, an a bit of a way. Uh, and this might be his sort of statement of like, I'm, I'm here for good. Like, I, you know, like I've been here, but now like no one isn't going to be paying attention to me from now on. Yeah, the studio did take a risk on this movie, right? I mean, this is a big story. It's some of it's in Spanish, you know. So their their deal with him is most likely. I don't know this for sure, but my guess is the deal with him is like you got to have stars in this. You got to have people that folks are going to come see in the movie theater in order to sort of anchor all these parts. You know, I, I do remember one thing I read along the way that he and the uh, the producer uh, Laura Bickford they were sort of the movie wasn't a full go movie yet, but they knew they only had the actors because they were all stars. They only had them for little like. Short windows, right? Like you only had Michael Douglas for what three weeks or whatever. So, so they were sort of like backing up against the schedule, and it was it was it was like almost going to fall apart. And he Soderbergh sunk like two hundred grand of his own money into pre-production to sort of keep the wheels on the truck in order to sort of get the movie across a, a, a line where the studio would sort of then put in the money to actually make the movie. And that you know he was like you know taking a real risk because there's a you could very easily imagine a studio in 1999 or whenever they greenlit this saying uh i don't think so let's go let's go try something else but kudos to them for for going through with it i think and for him for sort of sticking to his guns changing gears for a second you know what one thing i really liked about this that i don't think i've seen in another movie is when there's like that news report i guess of the one cartel being taken down it's 
wordless on the screen and just told through subtitles. Like, it's almost like it's a newspaper. I don't think I've ever seen anything else. I thought that was really cool. Like, instead of having... I feel like the, the obvious choice there would be to have, like, a newscaster, for instance, speaking. But I guess because it's in Mexico, it would be a Spanish newscaster speaking Spanish. And so then it would be subtitled anyway. Like, is that... I don't know why the decision was made to do it the way they did, but I really, really like that. Yeah, I thought that was cool, too. It served just as, like, a very interesting bridge between shots, in a way, you know? Like, <laughs> I guess we're always just sort of used to hearing reports. It was just kind of interesting to read it, almost like as it was being typed as an article or something like that. Just another one of those artistic flares that shine and elevate, you know, just seemed like a choice that worked. You know, not an obvious choice either, but like, yeah, you're disoriented in the moment, I guess, as the raid is going on and the words are coming on the screen. You're like, wait, I don't hear anything, but I see words like what? (laughs) It's kind of cool. This is what I mean about the movie may not hold together for a quote unquote regular viewer as well as for other filmmakers. Like it's full of this kind of stuff where if you are in, engaged in the in the sort of study of or um, making of movies, there's just so much here to chew on and to say, oh, could I steal that? Oh, how did he get that moment? How did that come together? You know, there's a, all kinds of images that stick in my head. There's a moment where Erica Christensen, I think it's the first time that she's freebasing and she takes the hit and then leans back and a shot close to her face and a, a single tear runs down her face as she leans back. And, you know, if there are things like that, that that really stick in my mind that are sort of, that seem to be, about the real human moments in this movie. There's also some editing where there'll there'll be these little jump cuts in the middle of the of the scene, sort of like he, he used to some degree in Out of Sight, that sort of just overlap the dialogue a little bit. We jump ahead then a little moment in the scene and th- things like that that I, I know I've stolen from and will, and will continue to steal uh, <laughs> that, that sort of work just so well. I really like that the, I wrote down that the nonlinear editing that he uses here that he's been using the last couple movies works really well when your story's about drugs. Like nothing is sensical, like nothing makes sense. Like things are sort of fuzzy, out of focus. Things are like either past and present. And like, we don't really have a sense. It's hard to tell on a grand scale how long this movie takes place over. It's not days, but is it weeks? Is it months? Is it years? Like, I don't know. I mean, I guess also maybe, it, I guess it could be kind of days. Like, I honestly have no idea the breadth of what happens here. Like, from beginning to end, how long has it been? I think our main clue would be the court case for Catherine Zeta-Jones' husband. They're enough that they're in the case that they're that they're calling witnesses, which leads me to believe that the first part of the movie is going to be over days to weeks, and then, then they, they jump ahead. There's a part in the middle of the movie where we've moved ahead, where Benicio Del Toro is doing all of his sort of taking out the other cartel, and you know, the, the events are sort of happening, and we move ahead to the point where, they're, where the trial's going on. I mean, those trials can take... Uh, no, a long, long time, maybe years. So that, that'd be my guess. I also wonder if that ever really went to trial or like it fell apart pre-trial when the defense's or the yeah, prosecution's key witness was killed. So again, like I think that's probably the best baseline, but I also have no idea if that is just weeks or months or whatever. True, I, I don't know. It could have been pre-trial. No, that's, that's very true. That's very, So so I, my guess, if you just asked me before I thought about it, I would say probably weeks. And then thinking about it, I was like, well, maybe it's longer than that. When I was watching it, it jumps around, but it is told linear. And, you know, it is told in a straight timeline, which I didn't know until, like, halfway through the movie when, uh, like, Michael Douglas meets with Salazar. Around that point, I was like, oh, we're not really jumping around in time. Like, everything is being told in order. We're just jumping around in space. Like, we're going from city to country to other country and things like that, though. Um, But I think it really helps with the color coding and stuff because he jumps around abruptly. You know, like, there 
it really doesn't see it just seems yeah. to be like let's go here now all right let's get let's get back to this now or like we'll just do one or two scenes in each place and jump back so it's really helpful that he's color coded this because you really are able to orient yourself rather quickly where i and i feel like something like crash i i wasn't and that's sort of one of his failings it's like because there's there's other movies like this you know that jump around as much that aren't as successful even if they might be better stories because they're just not constructed uh in a way that like is readable you know is or you can follow without thinking you know too hard about so that you can actually pay more attention to a story that's a little more got a little more depth to it might take you someplace a little deeper yeah, once you learn what the colors, not even necessarily like what they mean, like the blues are like to be depressive because that's a really sad storyline. And then the Catherine Zeta-Jones ones are like primary colors to be like glitzy and glamoury. But like, even if you're not thinking about what those mean, by the time you realize like blue, okay, we're Michael Douglas, we're with Erica Christensen, we're rich white girl getting high. But like, you're right, because they go from not necessarily like the middle of a scene, but like closer to the middle of a scene than the end. And then all of a sudden we're like, we're just washed out with Benicio and like, okay, now we're just like, it's a different thread now. And it's like, once your brain is able to really process what that means, it's easy to follow. Because like, if everything, like you're saying, if, if it was all shot singularly like Crash or whatever, you'd be like, I don't know, like, is this the scene? Like, are we just outside the house? As opposed to going from like Cincinnati down to Tijuana. Yeah, it really allows him to make those those jumps. I do remember as a young pretentious film student with other young pretentious film students that you never oh god that they well, some of them that had complaints one of the complaints was that they felt it was heavy handed in its use of, of color and, and and I can understand that the blue is really blue you know and the, and the the bleach the bleached out Mexico stuff is really bleached out I think though you're right it, it just enables them to, to sort of move with real alacrity between these places and we understand where we are and they do feel to me also very thematic thematically connected to the stories that are going on in those places, I, I never, I've never faulted that. But I do know that I do know some people have that criticism, and I, and I do see that's a very strong choice. I just think it's, I think it was the right choice. That's interesting because that's one of the things I picked up on that I feel Soderbergh does is he plays with you know film and video. He'll he'll switch from color to black and white. Like he likes to really mix it up and make you know you're like watching a movie at times. You know, so he's like different stock, different look, but same film. Switch it up. And I really just regarded it at first as like a shortcut for your mind, just so that you could just you know I'm over here now. But the more I think about it, yeah, I guess there there is sort of like deeper to it. I mean, you just feel like you're cooking in the sun down in Tijuana, you know, and, and you feel like you're shivering like up north and with Michael Douglas. Like, I, I don't know, like those are just sort of subliminal touches. I, I feel like you need them in a movie this mainstream. That's my bottom line. Like if this was a pretentious art film, yes, like, come on, we're, you know, it's amateur hour, really. But like he's bringing this to a broader audience and, you know, this is an aesthetic they may not be used to, but it's very effective and, you know, I kind of feel like I see it a lot nowadays, like messing with stock or messing with uh, the medium to convey a different time or place. I really wonder, because one thing that I read was that Soderbergh thought this was going to be rated NC-17 for like his graphic depiction of drug use. And what he said, I mean, I'm, I don't know if the studio would have let him do it, but like he said that he was ready to let it be released as NC-17, which I'm sure the studio would have been like, no, we got to reel that back because we got to make money on this. But like, if that's his mindset... It's, I don't think he's necessarily bringing it to the mainstream audience. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, I, I agree that it works. It helps the mainstream audience. But if he's making this movie like, I'm telling a story, I'm not cutting stuff, I'm willing to release this to a, so that only, you know, 5% or whatever, you know, whatever scaled back down percentage from 
R-rated audience would see it. I don't know if it's that or if I don't know if it's like as an aid to the audience or just something that he wanted to do just to sort of be able to tell the story his way. Like I don't know. You you might be right. Although my guess would be, knowing how canny he is about this stuff, is that depending on when he first said that, that might be a sort of. PR stunt to make sure it gets an R rating, where he's going to say ahead of time, look, they're going to want to be NC-17 because they're too chicken shit to let this real life, you know, uh, drug use stuff through. And then they're then they're sort of like, prove him wrong by by giving it an R. <laughs> you know, like, that kind of stuff happens all the time. And he's smart enough at this point to, to know that. I, I, I agree with, with um, Mike. I feel like it's, to me, it's pretty clear given the who he's cast in it and um, the way that the our sort of who our characters are that we sort of are rooting for in the movie, and then the way the way that it's put together. I said I took my mom to this movie. I've talked about my mom on previous shows on different <laughs> things, mostly talking about her in terms of taking uh, of, of um, Nancy Myers movies, which is really her bread and butter. Uh, you know, but I took her to this. I can't remember exactly why, but we went to it. I think maybe because she was interested in what I was really interested in since I was heading off to film school, and I said, "Yeah, let's go see this movie that I that I just think is is really great." And she loved it. And the and the way she's able to was able to sort of be in it with with me is that it's, she's got Michael Douglas who she knows she you knows she's got Catherine Zeta Jones who she's reading about People magazine and then <laughs> and and then and then they make he makes it very clear where we are in the story he's not going to play with ambiguity there there maybe ambiguity in other parts of the story in terms of uh, what we should or shouldn't do in, in terms of dealing with drugs in this country but there's no ambiguity geographically in this movie and i think that that's by design yeah definitely oh, we got to get your mom on a guest spot one day <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as soon as you do Father of the Bride, she will be, uh, or French Kiss, she'll be here. <laughs> so this is kind of, I don't want to say it's the end of an era, but this is the last film he will be nominated for an Oscar for. We've got some Emmy nominations and Emmy awards coming up for The Nick and Behind the Candelabra and stuff like that, but this year, between Aaron Brockovich and this, he was only nominated for Best Director twice, and it was both in the same year, and he won for this. Well, that's got to be a statistic, right? Directors nominated for two films in one year? Who was the guy, Tobin? We talked about it last week. I think it was Michael Curtis. Yes. Mm-hmm. He was nominated for Best Screenplay for Sex Lies. But after that, in terms of Oscars, I mean, his movies might get Oscar noms, but he personally doesn't have any from here on out. So it's kind of the end of an era in that way. The other thing that was cool was that there are four people won Oscars for this for this movie, and their names are Steven, 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 and Benicio. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we should. Can we talk just for a minute about Stephen Gagan, who wrote this movie? This is a, was a, at the time a young guy who had been through basically. My memory is that he had been through Erica Christensen's story. He was a you know a well-off kid who got way into into drugs and had sort of eventually gotten himself clean. And so that was really his in in the, in the movie and was sort of exercising some of his own demons. He'd go on to write Syriana and a movie with uh, Benjamin Bratt and um, Katie Holmes. I think there's a thriller that they're in together, and he just made that movie Gold, which is bad. I heard that, yeah. <laughs> uh, Matthew McConaughey looks exactly like my cousin in that movie, so I oh, will not that's... be seeing it because it just scared me watching the trailer. <laughs> that's not good in any in any way. In, in any case, in any case, I think he did a really nice job turning this epic, you know, British <laughs> miniseries into uh, an admittedly long but a sort of contemporary movie, and we're really working with Soderbergh to to make those those things happen. I think it's a, I think it's a, a very well-written movie. Apparently people criticized him for saying that 
Uh, the Erica Christensen character is, like, so good at school, but yet she's so high all the time. Like, this isn't believable. He's like, well, I had a perfect attendance record when I was fucked up on drugs. Yeah, like, yeah. this is based <laughs> yeah. on my life. So, you know, if you have a problem with it, like, I I live this. Yeah, that, that stuff to me didn't seem out of the realm of reality whatsoever. Like, I went to high school in the 90s. So, like, yeah, I, <laughs> that just seemed like, right almost like documentary style at, like for real like they just documented high school kids of the day even though and I think that's why maybe that part got on my nerves the most this time around is because like you know not, not like I didn't I never did hard drugs like that but like I just think I identified too hard with sitting around and like drinking with my friends and just like talking like we knew the answers to everything like that and they just conveyed that really well just being like super high and like talking out of your ass and sounding like really prophetic or like like you know the answers he apparently also got expelled he attended a private school and he was expelled the week before his graduation for driving a go-kart down the halls of the school so like (laughs) this guy's lived a life I finished this movie and I was like, all right, I feel like I got everything. Like, it's very concise for how sort of segmented and all over the place it is. Like, it's it really does stay together and it feels like all as one in the end. You know, it feels like one movie. I, I was worried the second time around because I didn't remember hardly any of this. I was like, wow, I hope like, I hope this doesn't just feel like a bunch of loose threads at the end or something like, but no, like everything comes to a point i feel of, of a good ending for each point I, like i never feel like i need to see the next scene in any of these moments here and i really like uh don Cheeto's last moment in the movie where he plants the bug <laughs> this was in an interview with soderbergh so i know this is true that when he after he plants the bug and gets kicked out of that house and he's like sort of being escorted off the property by those two guards he shoves that one guard in the chest and that wasn't in the script like he just did that and so that guy chasing after him is like pissed off I think that like Don Cheadle just like throwing his weight around yeah like he just you know yeah he like falls into some girl behind her too and she's like wait a minute what (laughs) that's great oh and the thing that I I think I brought up last week or maybe a couple weeks ago for the first time that perennial the name of his production studio it's in this movie as well the company where Don Cheadle and Luis Guzman go to apprehend Miguel Ferrer is perennial storage so that's the name that like Soderbergh sneaks into all of his movies so I think this might be one of the last times that he does that every time that IMDb points it out I will I will mention it on here uh, he's about to start a section eight with Clooney after this 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 is their their okay they're gonna open their production company here real soon uh, which then will span the next you know six eight movies or something like that I don't know if it was their company. I think they were producers, co-producers on uh, Scanner Darkly with Keanu on Keanu Club. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So that was funny to see their names pop up in the credits of a Keanu film. They did Pleasantville. They do. A, they did a few movies for Friends. My last note about this movie, and I feel like this is a note that's going to one day be true of just about every movie, but six actors from this movie would join the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> Wait, let me see if I can get them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Name yep. Okay. Yeah. We have War Machine with Don Cheadle. Yes, one. Ant-Man Sr. with Douglas. Yep. Miguel Ferreira as the vice president. Yep. There's there's one more that's kind of obvious, and then two that are just sort of like, sort of similar to Samuel L. Jackson, like in every movie, kind of, but not really. You know, like just sort of... There's one more who's a very colorful, and this is a, a hint, a colorful character in a couple different Marvel movies. Are you counting Topher Grace for his, no, his nope. Spider-Man stuff? Okay. Okay. Nope. No, it's got to be the MCU. No, not Topher. Topher Grace isn't Spider-Man. Isn't He's he? in Spider-Man 3. That's uh, Eddie Brock. I thought you were confusing him like everybody else does with... Uh, to- Toby Toby Maguire? Yeah. Oh, I've never gotten them confused. <laughs> you got Toby, you got Tobin, and you got Topher. Yeah, so. true. Fair enough. Fair enough. 
All right, so who am I missing? Who are the who are the last three? Benjamin Bratt. Oh, that's right. He's uh, yeah, in Doctor Strange. Wait, who is he in in this movie? He's the drug lord in Mexico that that um, Catherine Zeta Jones. No way. to, yeah. Oh my god, I didn't even know he was in this movie. Okay, so if I knew he was in this movie, I you, might have caught that. You could miss him in Doctor Strange too. It's about as long as scene. yeah. Catch him in the post credit scene though. You got John Slattery plays an older Howard Stark in oh, Iron that's Man, right. yes, 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 Captain yes. America: Civil War. Yes. When he showed up, I jumped up and clapped. Actually, <laughs> he's in one scene. <laughs> and the last one, you're going to be mad for missing this: the Collector, Benicio del Toro. Oh, right, right. But yeah, I mean, eventually, on a long enough timeline, every movie's going to have six Marvel Cinematic Universe actors <laughs> in it. But, you know, six in this one movie, I mean, I mean, there are 135 speaking roles, so it's not crazy to see that six of them I just don't know Marvel how movies. I got Miguel Ferreira, but not Benicio Del Toro. I was like, yeah, the, vice, the, <laughs> the evil vice president, but not the, like, amazing collector who owns Howard the Duck. I know. And now Miguel Ferreira is... Twin Peaks related too, as we record this, but you know, after we after this airs, and rest in peace, Miguel Ferreira. Uh, right, yeah. he's yeah. he's passed since. So, thanks for his body work. I have nothing else to say about this movie. Tobin, do you have any other notes or anything else you want to say about Traffic? Two quick things. One, one of the notes I had near the end that I had forgotten. There's a scene, one of the last scenes with Michael Douglas, where he gets in a cab after leaving the White House, and that White House, incidentally, where they do the press briefing, that was uh, from the uh, Warner Brothers set for West Wing, the press room. He, so he goes out and gets in this cab, and the camera just stays on him in this medium close-up in the cab as it drives away for a long time. And Tony Gilroy stole that for the last shot of Michael Clayton with uh, George Clooney, which is one of my favorite movies. And he and, – and is a great ending to that movie. But then I saw this and I thought, oh, you bastard. You stole that from here. You <laughs> And so, as I say, people really do take from this movie in all kinds of ways. The other thing is that you can see where the – probably both the narrative and also the sort of production side of how they're going to make he and, and Clooney are going to make K Street, their TV show for HBO, in uh, with, that's going to take place or it's going to be shot a couple of years from the time traffic is made. When they're at the K Street party, they're at the Georgetown party with all the senators because the senators will make appearances in K Street and John Slattery as well as one of the main characters uh, in K Street. And and this is the first time that I remember him being in a Soderbergh movie. So you can see as, as we as we've been experiencing all along the DNA of some of his future work in the sort of the, the current uh, current movie here. Mike, any last thoughts? Yeah, you know, I really like this movie upon revisiting it. I like the way it jumps around. I like all the different uh, style to it, the different tone. I think Soderbergh just does a really great job of keeping this all together. It's remarkable seeing how like his last three films were just way smaller, more intimate, and um, like the, the confidence he has to pull this off. It's just really astounding at times because just like anybody... I don't care. Like, even Spielberg could have screwed this up. You know, Scorsese could have screwed this up. Like, uh, at times you almost get the sense of, like, oh, maybe Scorsese could have made this, like, (laughs) the way it jumps around a little bit. But um, I think this is just, like, really well-crafted, really satisfying, and just interesting sort of next step in his in his evolution so uh, definitely you know one thing that came to mind that this reminded me of in, in the future we're going to get to is contagion just like sort of the pace and even the ocean movies at time i think we were talking a little in this about you know we couldn't really peg how long this film 
takes, like how the span of time in which this movie takes place, it's kind of hard to tell. And I think that's something Soderbergh's going to bring back often. And that's really cool because that's something, you know, that film is designed for is to span, you know, large amounts of time in one single cut, right? From from shot to shot, you could jump a hundred years if you need to. And it's really cool that he's just going to keep like implementing his unique touches down the road like he's you get the sense that he knows that he has certain strengths and he has a style and that he's going to adhere to it for a while and trust it and and that's cool so it was fun to revisit this and i and i look forward to the next one and next week we have oceans 11 speaking of his oceans movies which was my favorite soderbergh going into this but now it's a question of will i like it more than out of sight so stay tuned so we can figure that out because i really 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 love oceans 11 (laughs) um but we'll see we will see everybody loves oceans love it's so good so for all things Cinemakers, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter. We are just days away now, I believe, maybe a week and a half or so away from launching Boyfriend Material, the Ryan Gosling podcast, and Magic Mike's, the, the Channing Tatum podcast. So go listen to those when they all launch on December 1st. Uh, we might also have other shows by that point that recording Joey does not know future Joey will have put up so we're, it's a mystery for all of us so just go to those three places cageclub.me facebook.com slash cageclub and at cageclubpod on twitter to see what we're doing I'm Joey Lewandowski I'm Mike Manzi and I am Tobin Addington and we'll see you next time on Cinemakers Cinemakers